Well, we want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of First Timothy, chapter three, verses four through seven, and Titus, Titus, chapter one, verses five through nine. Our scripture reading will be from those two texts as Paul wrote these letters, also known as pastoral epistles, to Timothy and Titus, both of them who were pastors, both around the same time, one to Timothy, who was ministering in Ephesus, one to Titus, who was serving in Crete. And they are both related to the qualifications of overseers or elders as we look forward to what God will do for our church in terms of new leadership in the future. The text of the Word of God reads in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. The text of Scripture reads, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refuse those or refute those who contradict. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Lord in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, which is eternal, which sanctifies us, causes us to grow, and gives us, Father, wisdom. And we pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that once again we might see great and wonderful things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. leaders in the church, their responsibility is to lead, to lead others to fix their eyes on Jesus, to lead others to focus on that which is eternal, 
to lead others to be able to share the hope that resides within us through the gospel of grace. If you've ever watched the movie Amazing Grace, you've probably heard of the name of William Wilberforce, who led the fight to end the slave trade in England in the early 1800s. When his efforts ended to end slave trade, there was another man whom you may not have heard of. His name was George Williams. George Williams had compassion on the youth, the young men who came to London, because young men came to London in order to find work, but many of them ended up in crime, and many of them ended up in London's slums. His compassion and desire to reach out to them was great, and he began a Bible study among these youth in 1844, and he said, quote, the object is the improvement of the spiritual condition of the young men engaged in houses of business by the formation of Bible classes, family and social prayer meetings, mutual improvement of societies, or any other spiritual agency. To improve their spiritual condition through Bible study, through prayer, through classes, and any other spiritual agency. It was the inception of a movement later known as the Young Men's Christian Association, or the YMCA. It was a great movement that spread west over the sea and was championed by men such as Dwight L. Moody, who, who, who began Moody Bible Institute and was the president of the Chicago chapter of the YMCA. The YMCA had a missionary arm out of it, and that missionary arm was led by a man named John Mott, M-O-T-T, that began in one of the greatest missionary recruitment efforts in all of missions history called the Student Volunteer Movement. Directly or indirectly, they affected and recruited some 20,000 missionaries. Mott authored an extremely popular book entitled The Evangelization of the World in This Generation, and he won a Nobel Prize. But over time, after World War I, YMCA faced some difficult circumstances, a decline in revenue, and they began to emphasize fitness programs and downplayed Bible training. Fast forward some 50 years later in the 1970s to the 1980s, the YMCA reinvented itself to become a family fitness center. And in 2010, the YMCA dropped everything to be known as just the Y. That's what happens when leaders lose their founding vision, which was, as I recall for you, our object is the improvement of the spiritual condition of young men engaged in houses of business by the formation of Bible classes, by the formation of prayer meetings, for any spiritual agency. That is what happens to many Christian ministries, schools, as we saw last week, of Harvard and Yale, which began with a solid biblical foundation and all of this, they slide to the left to become just a secular organization. Why? Because leaders have failed to hold fast to what they were called to do, failed to hold fast to a spiritual focus, and now it has become devoid of the gospel. 
Even when you study the history of missions, before 1900, there was a great unity among those who wanted to reach the world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But after the turn of the century in the 1900s, there was a strong faction, a strong faction led by some very liberal, progressive individuals, theologians and teachers who wanted to focus on social issues like poverty, like economic inequality, alcoholism, crime, racial tension, slums, unclean environment, child labor, war, etc. It became known as the social gospel movement. It was led by many progressive liberal thinkers devoid of the gospel. Their main focus was on making the world a better place. But the other group remained faithful. Not that they neglected the social ills, but they felt and believed that the main priority was not the caring of physical needs to make the world a better place, but it was the focus on the spiritual needs of the lost and the evangelization of the world. When examining the history of various ministries and organizations time and time again, it is because leadership has lost sight of what they were called to do, and that is to bring the gospel to the lost and to build up the saints through the Word of God. It is incumbent upon godly leadership to keep the focus on edification of the saints and the evangelization of the lost for the glory of God. Otherwise, what happens? A church, a ministry, a school shifts its emphasis from the spiritual to the secular. And so as we look forward to new leadership in the church, it is imperative that godly leaders are chosen, men who have a focus a spiritual focus to keep the church in a God-honoring role to do what it has been called to do. And so we've been looking at the qualifications for godly leadership in the church, and we've looked at a number of them already, and today we will look at the last number of them for the qualifications of an elder. We'll look at the fact that he needs to be a good manager of his family not a young Christian, that he has to have a good reputation for those with those outside the church, that he must not be self-willed or quick-tempered, that he must love what is good, that he must be just and devout. The first qualification that we'll look at today comes from 1 Timothy 3, 4 to 5. The text of the scripture reads, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? When we look at verse 6 of Titus 1 in our scripture reading, we see another passage as well. It says, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Two letters, one written to Timothy, one written to Titus. Timothy was in Ephesus, as I mentioned, Titus was in Crete. And I've been reflecting on this particular particular qualification since last spring because it is a very, very difficult, very difficult qualification to interpret. There are challenges that revolve around a proper interpretation of this passage. And there are various translations that you probably have here that translate it differently. In Titus chapter 1, verse 6, when you look at that particular passage, those of you who have an ESV who have an NIV or NASB or NRSV, all say having children who believe. 
versus those who have, may have a King James Version or the Holman Christian Standard Bible or look at the Net Bible. You'll see it says, faithful children. The Greek word there that is used for that particular word, faithful, it can mean one of two things. It can mean, one, believing or trusting in God, or it can mean trustworthy or faithful. One has to do with their belief. Another has to do with their behavior. In other words, the question is, what is the requirement? Is the requirement of an elder to have Christian children, or is it a requirement that one has well-behaved children who are faithful to their earthly father? And when we look at the New Testament usage, and I'm going to take a little bit of time to look at this particular one because it is somewhat complex, we'll take a look at the New Testament word. We find that this word, this Greek word, pistos, for, for belief or for behaved, it is used in both ways. Believing 12 times in the New Testament, faithful 36 times. It's well attested. And so whatever view is taken, and there is, there are two, there are two by which many in the Christian community hold to, whatever view is taken, the issue is this. Does a man's family, does a man's family and his children detract from his testimony, his testimony as the head of his home? Does it detract from his spiritual leadership of his family and cause him not to be above reproach? That would be the common denominator because these are lists of qualifications for that of an elder. And so Paul, he sends out these two letters. And one of the pivoting factors is this. One of the pivoting factors in understanding which of the two options in Titus chapter 1 verse 6, whether it is a Christian child or a faithful child, is to answer the question of whether or not the letter to Titus was supplementary to the one in Timothy. In other words, were there two different standards and there was an elaboration in Titus's letter to give Timothy's letter more information of what the qualification should be? Or should they be seen as similar? Similar. There are a number of qualifications that one might look at that are somewhat different that are not listed in the book of Timothy that are in Titus, such as not quick-tempered or loving what is good or just or devout. But those would seem very similar, perhaps, close to the ones in 1 Timothy. And one might argue that they're self-evident, that that is what an elder ought to be. So there's no strong reason in my mind to think that Paul would send one distinct set of qualifications to Timothy and a separate one to Titus. There's no good reason, I think, to send two different sets of qualifications to another church. And so when we look at these qualifications, we should see them as, for the most part, similar, parallel. And with that in mind, let me share with you why I think I would give greater weight to the understanding that the translation ought to be faithful children rather than children who are all Christians. Assuming that there are similar lists in both lists of qualifications, there is the issue that this is a very important qualification. This is a very important qualification, and so there is the understanding of why in the world, or the question that would come up, why in the world would Paul omit, omit the standard, omit the standard to Timothy, sending 
only that he must be a good manager of his household, if it were believing children. Andreas Kostenberger writes, In the larger context of the teaching of the pastoral epistles, it would be unusual if the author had two separate standards, a more lenient one in 1 Timothy 3.4, meaning obedient, and a more stringent one in Titus 1.6, meaning believing. And that's an important point. It would rather be unusual at this point, and I know of no good reason to see why there would be a higher standard to Titus if it were believing children. Secondly, a second reason why I think that this would probably be more of a behavior issue, a behavior interpretation, a translation that those of you who have the King James Version would probably say faithful children is in view, is because in 1 Timothy 3, 4, looking at these as parallel passages, it would be more clear. Verse 4 of 1 Timothy 3, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. One of the principles in Bible study is when you look at a particular passage and you have another passage, you compare the two, and the one that is more clear helps you to understand the one that is less clear. The one that is more clear is the one in 1 Timothy 3, 4. It refers to children who are in control, who show great respect to their father, that they are not wild or disorderly, that their children are not disrespectful. And since these are similar passages, the passage in Titus 1.6 addresses the behavior of children, I believe, those who are faithful, just like it does in 1 Timothy. Both would be in reference to behavior rather than one for behavior, one for belief. The term children there is the same, so there's no difference. They're both the word that would mean children of any age, although in Titus, admittedly, the word dissipation that is led there, that they must be faithful children, not in dissipation or not in uh, rebellion, would refer perhaps to older children, clarification on their behavior, older children, because dissipation means to live an a, a indulgent or wasteful life that is, uh, that is characterized perhaps by excessive drinking. That's the idea behind dissipation. It'd be hard to say that that would apply to a seven-year-old. So not only is there an omission issue, which is big, but there is a behavioral context in 1 Timothy 3, for the more clear passage, but there is a more technical reason, and that is a syntax reason, a syntax reason, meaning the arrangements of words. So if you look at First Tim- Titus with me in the book of Titus, the way that Paul writes is important, and he uses words in a particular way. He uses the phrasing of something positive followed by two negative things which elaborate on what the positive thing is not. Let me give you an example. Titus chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. This will help us to understand verse 6. This testimony is true, Paul writes. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. That is the positive. Not paying attention to two things, Jewish myths and commandments of men. They are what sound faith is not. Secondly, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, older women, Titus 2, 3, likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. That is the positive, reverent in behavior, not, here are the two things that it is not, malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. 
If one is reverent in the behavior, they should not be gossips or enslaved to much wine. This is how Paul writes, especially in the same letter to Titus. So when we look at Titus 1.6, we look at the two things that the child is not to be, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Is that a greater reference to what is a behavior or a belief? And I would say that that has to do more with behavior, i.e., that would refer to faithful children versus Christian children. They have to do with behavior. Otherwise, one might expect it to say instead, if it were belief, something like along the lines of not accused of rejecting the faith or unbelief. But instead, it says dissipation or rebellion. So there is a syntax reason. And then there is a grammatical reason, not only a reason of omission or not only the reason of 1 Timothy 3-4 being the clearer passage and the syntactical reason, but a grammatical reason. Dr. Bill Barrick, who is a former professor of the Old Testament, says that this particular verb is used to modify a noun and always carries the meaning of faithful or trustworthy or credible. When it is used as an independent and functions as a substantive, it means believing or believing one. Now, some have argued that this particular passage is translated faithful. It always refers to a believer. That is true. Always refers to a believer. When it, this particular word is used to translate it into something faithful, it's meaning a faithful believer. But it doesn't exclude, it doesn't exclude the other option. And the last one, just to make a comment about, is that many have said, well, look, all of these qualifications here, they refer to a person who is in control. They're able to be uh, not pugnacious. They're able to control their temper. They're able to live a pure life, faithful to their wife, etc., etc. And here, a man doesn't have control over the salvation of his children, so it can't possibly mean that. That's often stated, and I'm not so sure that's such a strong enough argument in my mind, and the reason is because God very well could, could make His qualification based upon a person's not uncontrolled, uh, outside of His control, His child's faith. After all, in the Old Testament, for example, if you wanted to serve the Lord as in the priesthood, you had to be of the Levitical tribe, you had to be one of Aaron's descendants, that was out of your control. In addition, if you wanted to approach the Lord, it says in Leviticus 21, you could not be blind, lame, you couldn't have a disfigured face, it says you can't have a broken foot or a broken hand, you can't be a hunchback or a dwarf, you can't have eczema or scabs, it says. No one like that, and all of those would be outside of your control. And if the New Testament, you might want to say, too, look at the qualifications of 1 Timothy, that a person couldn't be a new convert and needed to be a man who is above reproach. All of these things are outside of one's control. However, I still believe that even though, even though some might say that this refers to a believing Christian child... The better translation would be that of behavior because of dissipation or rebellion are the opposite of that. And it would be incongruous to say that he gave a separate, separate standard to Titus and a different one to Timothy when this is so very important. So the question that is foundational 
that is foundational is what kind of testimony does a man's children and family and household have upon himself and the testimony of God? Does it bring such disdain possibly upon the church and his effectiveness? Man must be a good manager of his own household, lest he not be able to manage the household of God. Secondly, not a young Christian, not a young Christian, verse 6 of chapter 3, not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. One who is to be an elder is not to be a young Christian. He is to be somebody who is more mature relative to those who are in the congregation. First Timothy, Paul includes this qualification, and he says this because it is important that the person not fall into pride, because those who are younger in the faith will make many mistakes, it takes humility to be able to admit those mistakes, and not to fall into pride as the devil did. In Isaiah 14, chapter 14, verse 12, the scriptures tell us of a profile of Satan's attitude when God says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan was a created being. Satan was a created being, and there's some evidence that he was head over all of the angelic beings, that he was the highest created being, being star of the morning and sun of the dawn. He was given great authority, and in his heart there was pride. There was pride, perhaps as he saw God creating other things. Perhaps as he saw God's power, perhaps as he saw God create man and God creating all of this beautiful, all of this beauty, and pride was in his heart. He rebelled against God and it brought him low. Proverbs 11.2 tells us when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Or Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. When there is a disqualification, when there is a failure in leadership, the consequences are magnified and so protect the church. Paul says one must not be a new or young believer. Thirdly, not only must one be a good manager of one's household, one must not be a new or young believer, but thirdly, one must have a good reputation outside of the church, verse 7. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The word reputation has to do with the word martyr, meaning a witness or a testimony. And a person who is going to be an elder or overseer or pastor needs to have a good testimony outside of the church. Does it mean that people will always agree with him? It doesn't mean that they will know him in all of his parts, but he's got to have a good reputation. It means that they, what they do know of him, they do know that he is a person of integrity, of good character, that he doesn't carry some sort of bad reputation behind him. 
Philippians 2.15 says, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, blameless and innocent as children of God, above reproach. Where? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Just like Daniel's enemies, Daniel's enemies could not find something to accuse him of, even though they hated him. It's important that people know that one has a positive reputation outside of the church. If we were to call your coworkers, if we were to call your students that you study with, what would they say about you? If we were to talk with your neighbors, what would they say about how you treat them? What would your friends or your relatives say about how you are at family gatherings? What kind of a person, if we said, what is the most, what is the thing that stands out most about you when you first think of this individual? What would they say? Do you have a good reputation outside of the church? Does your testimony ring true, make people more interested in what makes your life the way it is? Or does it say, like in Romans 2.24, when Paul describes the effect of Israel's testimony because of their sins, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. An elder must have a good reputation with those outside of the church. Fourthly, they must not be self-willed, Titus 1.7, self-willed. It means that they're not to be arrogant. They're not to be interested in doing what they want. I'll do it my way sort of attitude. I want it this way. Proud, self-interest. If you don't get your way, you get upset. Self-fulfillment seeks its own agenda, has its own plans seeking its own way of doing whatever. It hampers God's working in the church. And as I mentioned before, one needs to be able to put one's own personal preferences aside in order to think, what is the best for the body of Christ? What is best for the church? Not one's own needs, not one's own soapbox, not one's own self-interest or one's own ambitions. Self-will needs to give its way to self-sacrifice, self-denial, simply unselfishness. And that's the question that as a leader one must continually ask, is this the best thing for God's church? Is this what God would be honored by? Is this on God's agenda, not my own? They must not be self-willed. Fifthly, they must not be quick-tempered. They must not be quick-tempered, Titus 1.7. They must not have a short fuse, that's what it means, easily provoked, Quick-tempered means that are peaceable, easily offended. They snap back. This person doesn't become angry if things aren't done exactly how it might be done their way. Decisions, when decisions don't go their way, they're not ones to hold a grudge or be angry. Leader will share in both the successes as well as the failures that come. So it's one quick-tempered. When they receive feedback or criticism, are they resentful or, or are they thankful to have received it? When they receive constructive thoughts, they're not to be angry or harbor resentment, but to be grateful to God. And the temper can be tied to many things, can be tied to pride or insecurity, can be tied to addictive behaviors, can be tied to some past hurtful experience, but whatever it is, tempers make people unapproachable and undesirable to be around 
hot-tempered man, Proverbs says, stirs up strife. And in a leadership context, it is very, very, very difficult and a cancer because if the church leadership is divided, a church will divide. They're not to be one who is a lightning rod for conflict. That is not to say there's not a place for righteous anger where we're angry because of sin, angry because God is defamed or something that is not right. But they're not to be quick-tempered. Sixthly, they're to be a lover of what is good. Lover is what is good. Means that one has a strong affection for what is good. As Romans 12, 9 reminds us, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Or Amos 5, 15, hate evil, love good. For some people, they think good things are boring. They think good things are dull or not exciting. Some would get their thrill and excitement off of what God would consider evil or wicked. But a godly spiritual leader must love what is good. It's just like many of you. Many of you are parents, and you love that which is helpful to your kids, don't you? If you truly love your children, you'll want what is good for them, whether you feed them healthy food, whether you feed them balanced meals, you want them to have warm clothing, you want them to have good experiences, you want them to have opportunities and education and all of these things which are good, and you want them to have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A parent doesn't want what is good for their child, and neglects their children, lives selfishly, not caring about their child's future. They would be very, very negligent. Likewise, a spiritual leader of a church looks out for the good of those who are under their care. They want what is good. They want what is best. They want to encourage them, to bless them, to help them to grow. And they think in those terms, what can we do to bless and be of an encouragement to them? Seventhly, they're to be just. They're to be fair and just. That's what the word means. Proper, what is fitting. Reminds us of Micah 6 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before their God. This word also means that the person is a principled person. They live by a principle. They're, they don't just do things because they're easy, but they do things because they're right to do. They don't choose things because they're more financially lucrative. They choose because it is proper and it is a biblical principle. They choose not because it is a benefit to oneself, but because it is proper, even if it is against one might be disadvantaged. They're not to live by the philosophy, it's okay because everyone else does it. They're not to live by the philosophy, it's okay unless you get caught. They're not to live by the principle, it's okay because the other way is just too much work. There to be people who are just, who live by biblical principles and fair. And then lastly, they are to be devout. They are to be devout. And the word means holy. It refers to one who is, lives in a life that is a godly life of divine direction and purpose. Just as Paul reminded the Thessalonians that we just finished that book, 1 Thessalonians 2.10. It tells us when Paul came to them, he says, you are witnesses as so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. 
pastor or an elder is to be separated from sin. They possess a reverence and a fear for God that is wholly devoted to the things of God. They're not to be worldly people, but people who pursue God. And that is the character of a person who is to be called to be in church leadership. Because character is the key. He must be a good manager of his own family, good manager of his own household. Not to be a young Christian, but to have a good reputation outside of the church and not self-willed, not quickly tempered. Love what is good, love what is just, love God such that he is devout. And so as we look forward to the coming coming weeks when we'll be nominating elders in the church, it's imperative to select based upon character, to be based upon character, as they will be in a position to guide the church for the next three years. These are exciting days. These are exciting days, some of the best days in my memory of this ministry. And those who are called to leadership will be those who will have the privilege and opportunity to serve the Lord, to guide the church in the years to come, to change lives, as our motto says, through the unchanging word. And they must be able to hold fast to the faithful word, to steer the church clear in a godly manner. One of the great stories of strong and godly spiritual leadership is the story of what happened to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest denomination in the United States. And they began a seminary back in 1859 when the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was founded. But by the end of the 1800s, the seminary had begun to be infiltrated by modernist ideas. Progressive liberalism set in. It began with one professor, and then more and more would adopt the ideas that were expounded those days. The entire theological mood of American Christianity was much more progressive by the turn of the 1900s. Writings began to be published, and the seminary became a part of that trend, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, more mainline, more accommodating to the culture, more acculturated, more accommodating to liberal trends. By the 1950s or so, it was, by and large, a liberal seminary although the Southern Baptist Convention as a denomination was still conservative, their flagship seminaries and others in their denomination were not because they had drifted far from their moorings. There were professors that openly questioned any notion of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They looked dismissively upon the virgin birth. They denied the Trinity. Human sinfulness had been redefined. They no longer held to the inerrancy of the Bible. Why? It all boiled down to leadership. That was until June 16, 1993. The board of trustees knew that there was a problem in this flailing seminary, which was the flagship seminary of the largest denomination. In June 16, 1993, the Board of Trustees appointed a young 33-year-old man, his name was Al Moeller, to take over the presidency of the seminary. And usually when you have a new president, it is a joyous occasion, it is a celebration, but for him it was not. That day was met, and the days to come as well, with strong opposition 
a dummy effigy which hung from a tree swinging outside the chapel doors. And when he was introduced in chapel, students stood up and turned their backs to the podium. People carried a casket around the campus, protesting with signs, singing songs like, We Shall Overcome. Graduates who came up when their graduation came, refusing to shake his hand, one snatching the diploma out of his hand and another spitting on him. People would boo him sometimes when he spoke. 1993, two years later, there was a faculty meeting and they submitted a vote, the majority of them, a no confidence in their new president. The student body and the majority of the faculty didn't like him nor want him. They held to some of these convictions, no bodily resurrection, no inerrancy of the scripture, denial of the virgin birth, denial of the trinity, all of these things. But how did this come about? Why was there strong opposition? Because of leadership. They had bought in to the liberal mindset and were drifting away from that which was biblically sound. But he was going to force the faculty to sign what was called the Abstract of Principles. The Abstract of Principles, which was their original founding confession of faith. That that which they were going to teach would be consistent with the Word of God and the doctrines that were established in the original founding of the seminary. And that led to great conflict. That led to most of the liberal faculty resigning and being fired. Millions of dollars were lost from donors. Student enrollment plummeted to historic lows. He was warned that this would happen, that he would drive the seminary into the ground by establishing that they return to biblical principles. But with tenacity to bring the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention around to biblical convictions. He endured years of very trying times, people who were opposed, many people. And then in 1998, three years later, there was another vote that was taken by the faculty. And it was an overwhelming vote of confidence by the faculty who was still there in his leadership. Liberal students had graduated. They had moved on to browner pastors. There were those who were liberal... Liberal professors or whatnot that held high other things than the Bible, and they left. And now, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is one of the largest seminaries in the entire world. It's known for strong biblical teaching to the glory of God. That is the glory that God grants to Himself when we honor the Word of God and when leaders hold fast to that which is true. That is the importance of choosing godly leadership that does not capitulate to the trends of the culture, that does not compromise the Word of God, that does not accommodate to what our culture will say is right and wrong. I pray that we won't be one who will someday drop all vestiges of Bible study and prayer and be just known as the why. I pray that this church would be one that would have courage, tenacity, to be known just as the Southern Baptist Convention decided that they wanted to reestablish its firm foundation of what it was founded on, and that was the Word of God. And that is the courage that leadership must have to guide the church in the years to come. Let's bow in a word of prayer. 
Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word. It is because of your word that we gather together. We pray, Father, that we must hold fast to it and that, Father, you would select those that you would have to be elders and deacons. In the future, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom that we might be true to you and your word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.